0: Welcome to the Happy in Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Arnold. I'm an expert certified coach and a physician mom. I help women physicians go from burnout to happy in medicine. Let's get started. Today we are going to cover the podcast interview. What the heck do I mean by that? I mean, last week we went into all the drama related to a recent podcast interview that I was asked to participate in as the interviewee. I had lots of thoughts and feelings. I felt super judged. It was really hard for me. I delayed, I procrastinated to avoid this at all costs until I worked through all the coaching. What it really boils down to is the thing that was in the way is I was feeling very judged And in last week's podcast, I walked you through how I walked myself through that judgment piece. And then today, you're going to see the actual podcast. I want to just preface this by saying, you know, what's, what's very valuable about this podcast is that you can learn, you can do a beautiful job, even if you're feeling judged. This is what today's example of, right? Yeah, you can feel judged and do a great job, for sure, 100%. And if you are new to coaching, you'll hear me coach a bit, a little bit, the guest or or the podcast interviewer. I'm not coaching him as against as will. I'm just saying coaching would look like this. So you'll get a nice, beautiful kind of behind the scenes look of what coaching feels and sounds like. This episode is actually loaded with gems. We've never done anything like this before. It's so different. I. Have not had myself interviewed and put on this podcast, so you're going to hear stories you've never heard before. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to cover, you ready? What I did when my husband disagreed with me. I said, I want to drop out of the MD-PhD program. He's like, please don't do that. And how we worked through that. Spoiler alert, I did drop out of the MD-PhD program <laughs> and I set the precedence for a marriage where Christina says she's going to do something and she's going to do something and how I take care of my husband as long along the way as well. And how I support him doing what he wants to do too, even when we don't see eye to eye on the exact particulars. I talk about how I got my coaching bug way back in high school, y'all. That was a long time ago. What to do when your boss tells you to your face repeatedly, you're easily replaced. When your default problem solving to any problem is always to work harder and how to move forward when you think a disastrous Western blot is threatening your academic career. I want to say also before we move on, just before I get you to the show, that there is a point I want to clarify. I did my medical school training and residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas, and I did a GI pathology fellowship at Johns Hopkins. The details aren't important at all, at all, at all, but I always want to be very honest about the facts. And so I think it gets a little jumbled in this interview and be really super clear here. Enjoy the show.
1: All right, Christina, thank you so much for joining uh, and being part of this BioCredible podcast to share your journey. I wanted to kind of just let the audience know, I actually know you professionally. We used to work together at the same organization. And when you went off to Colorado, we really didn't touch base. And then I found that you're uh, doing a lot of this coaching. And I found that to be very interesting. And But also I'm quite ignorant about what that career entails and if you could kind of share with the audience what is it that that you're doing what types of problems do you solve uh, for people
0: well thank you for inviting me i love what you're doing here i think it's such a nice blend of practical advice from someone who's seasoned in the field and also just like what no one else is really talking about so I, i love what you're doing with your podcast oh thanks and um, and for your listeners, we went on a recruiting dinner. I just remember it was like <laughs> yesterday going yes. to the, the steakhouse after, after the meeting. It was so fun. And so I'm yeah. glad we've been able to reconnect. Mm-hmm. So I'm a full-time coach now. And what that involves is I mainly work with physicians who come to me. Most of them are through feeling burnt out in their career, maybe even thinking of leaving medicine. And what we work on is how to create more happiness in their life.
1: I see. That's such a subjective end goal, right? And so, how do you uh, go about identifying what is unhappy in their current situation that's maybe leading them to burnt out uh, versus, uh, you know, changing altogether and so forth? Like, what are some of the thought processes that? Yeah. That go so in your this mind? is a
0: really common question as people say, "How do I know? How will I know if it works for me?" Mm-hmm. Which almost it reveals that. They don't quite understand, and this is common for people in academics, not understand that they just get to decide, am I happier now? Am I feeling better now? They get to make that decision, which is a really powerful place. I think medicine doesn't teach us to make our own decisions. It teaches us to be stressed about our annual review. What will the chair say? What will the vice chair say? Will I get my bonus? And it puts all of our value outside of ourselves, which has us at the effect of the world versus championing what we actually want. And so how coaching helps get there. I guess if I, were, if I were to define it, it's increasing awareness so we know what we want mm-hmm. again. So mm-hmm. it becomes clear what are our own expectations for ourselves? How do we get aligned with them? What can mm-hmm. we be doing next to get one step closer to happy?
1: I see. Now, what, if I were to just look at your CV I, uh, and not know you, I would be kind of surprised about this uh, uh, um, emphasis in your career, but I actually did know you, and uh, and although I wasn't really involved in, for example, uh, the pathology student interest group or, and so forth, I knew that you were very heavily involved in uh, in aspects of mentoring. Uh, well, you're when we were working in the same organization, and so what I think would be really interesting is to kind of understand at at what point. What was going in your head when you when you thought my interests and passions could be better served in this venue? What were the kind of the thought processes going on?
0: I love this question, and I thought in uh, and I, I love that you sent it to me in advance so I could really mull it over. And I was like, when was I? When did I first get in the bug for mentoring ish like this mm-hmm. world? And I remembered that my my earliest memories in high school, I was invited to be a peer counselor. Mm-hmm. and i just loved it. So we spent all day training how to work through conflict, you mm-hmm. know, the i statements, the sandwich feedback. <laughs> which in high school was just fantastic and it was just so genius back then because the principals identified, you know, who's going to find out who's in distress first, it's the students uh-huh. versus yeah. the teacher. And uh-huh. so how great to empower students with these conflict resolution techniques. So that's where it all started. And, I, you know, I think just one step led to the other, led to the other. I just, I loved it so much. I found other ways to create opportunities for it. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I got to this, I mean, this is not, was not an easy decision at all. There was a sure. lot of tears. There was a lot of <laughs> struggle and resistance yeah. Yeah. and every, er, there was a lot going on for me to get to this point. But the crux of the matters, I got to this point where I was going to have to choose that, my I was either gonna stay in academics or I was gonna leave, but I had run out of all of my time. Like there was no more time I could steal from this or steal for that. And so I started to see, okay, if I have to make a choice and that the time is limited, which way do I wanna go? And what really helped me was understanding I'm gonna be successful either way. There's no option where I, mm-hmm. I become a failure or become mm-hmm. ruined. I'm gonna be successful either way. How do I wanna spend? My one mm-hmm. precious life, mm-hmm. and the answer became very clear. The more I sat with, I will be successful either way.
1: Mm, I see. Now that 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 mindset of I can be successful. Uh, were you were you focusing more on achieving kind of short term, let's say, kitchen table goals, and in the sense that oh, I will be able to support my family, support, uh, obtain my, uh, my you know my financial objectives either way. Or was this more of uh, of an intangible uh, kind of concept of success? What were you focusing more on?
0: Yeah. So so for me, there was no way I was ever going to choose anything that put my financial goals, my family's livelihood mm-hmm. at stake. Okay. So this was not even a, a question I entertained until I saw that my income in coaching had succeeded my income in medicine. Okay. And at that point, I started thinking, well, where am I of most use to the world? Where do I feel most aligned? Where do I feel most happy? Mm-hmm. Where am mm-hmm. I making the greatest impact? And I think for most people, their answer will be staying in medicine. For the majority, 95% mm-hmm. of people will choose medicine. And I think it's a beautiful choice. For me, maybe I'm the unicorn. I, there was <laughs> another choice for me. Yeah, I, I would see. never have guessed that was a choice I would have made, <laughs> but it doesn't happen overnight, right? It happens like yeah. in stages. Yeah, and
1: and and so the um so so here you're you're at this point you've shown that you can succeed financially. That's a minimum criteria here, right? That you can mm-hmm. actually make I mean, continue to make a living, uh, and there's this other question of how can I, where, it, it seems like it's broaching into purpose and like life purpose, life passion and so forth. The, uh, I think a lot of people would be in a lot, experiencing doubt. And so uh, what types of things did you rely on, either people or, 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 or ways of thinking that kept you positive and something that on the surface seemed very different, although you'd have been manifesting it for so long, um, uh, but kind of knowing that you'd be successful, that you that you actually are making an impact on, on people. Mm. Um, what were those types of things, f-
0: feelings like? So what's really interesting is, yes, you're right. There was for sure doubt, but I think what's interesting, there was doubt either way. Mm. So whether you're in traditional medicine or you're out of it, your human brain will always offer you doubt. I just mm-hmm. didn't use it against myself. I so what it sounded like for me is, of course, I'm doubting myself. I'm leaving medicine. <laughs> I've been in it 22 years. Yeah. Of course, I'm doubting myself. And also, if I stay in medicine, I will also doubt myself. I for sure had doubts. None of the thoughts I've had as a coach were unique to a coach. They were all the thoughts I had when I was in academics, too. Mm-hmm. So then it became, if I'm going to be if i'm going to be f- having this doubt with me what like what arena do i want to be in while i work mm-hmm. through the doubt
1: i see okay that's really interesting so um one of the things that i think is common with trainees and junior people during um really at many stages in, in their life is they'll have these branch points uh, about what they want to do in their career or what or specific phases and you know, it, at times it could be that it was the right decision at the time, given the information and the passions of the moment. But it might be looking back, someone might say, Oh, I did all of this, and uh, I, you know, maybe I should stick with that. Maybe I should be compelled to, I feel compelled to continue with something because I've already done so much. Uh, and so when I look at, at, at what you've done, I see these really interesting branch points. So there's branch points of deciding to go to grad school. There's branch points from deciding, do I do a postdoc or go to residency? You know, all of these branch points uh, uh, that, that, that occur. And so if we went back in time to some of the earlier branch points, what were some of the thought processes that that were going on in your mind, uh, and and I'd be very interested in seeing how those thought processes matured as, as your career went on.
0: So this is a really remarkable pattern I've identified. Is that as uh, I, I coach mainly women, not all, women, okay. mainly women, and I have noticed this myself, and then it's been articulated in the people I coach who will say, you know, there was a point in my life where I was fearless, and I just did what i want and i didn't apologize for it and i just went out and got it and for most of us that's like for me it was age eight Some people was 13. i mean these are young years but we remember that freedom yes and it and it doesn't go it doesn't go away but we get a little disconnected the further we go. With moms mm-hmm. saying, "Well, you need to be nice," you mm-hmm. sizing, you need to smile more. And we just have load. We're layered on with all these expectations from our college professors, med students, our mentors, our mm-hmm. chairs, and every layer that comes on. It can be easy sometimes to get disconnected from what I, what we mm-hmm. what we really from that version of us who was fearless. And so I think yeah. like if I were to describe what coaching is, it's about getting back to that version of us. Mm-hmm. For me, when I was 20, I decided I wanted to do an MD PhD. And when I was 23, I decided I didn't want that anymore. And it, to me it made it was a that was also similarly a painful like identity shift to say that I was going to shift gears. It wasn't yeah. a pleasant experience because I had these expectations for myself. But also I feel like it was like shedding this layer of what I thought I wanted when I was 20 before I'd been in the lab for three years
1: mm-hmm. wasn't
0: at, once I had new data points, I had a different experience, and now I was making a different choice. Mm-hmm. And so the more I could understand myself that I'm always making the best choice in the moment, I just get new data points and new experiences, mm-hmm. and new perspectives, and things start shifting. And then I get the opportunity to make a whole nother choice if I want to. Mm -hmm. I just would, I I would, give the advice to your audience to love your reasons, the reason, and I've said this myself, but I've already invested so much time in this, in this (laughs) relationship, in this car, in this choice. Be very careful with that reason. It's, it's for me, at least it doesn't feel great. It feels like a burden and response and not responsibility. It feels very heavy to me because Mm -hmm. I have done this. I should continue it ignores what I really want, my agency, what makes me happy, and those mm-hmm. things I don't want to ever let go of.
1: I see. So, so I think that that's a, a really interesting balance, right? You raise some concepts of responsibility, uh, of passion. Um, one one teaching that I that I've experienced and has resonated with me a bit. That's a, might be a little bit distinct from what what, what you're saying. It has to do with purpose in life and one of the what the, the specific teaching I'm, I'm referring to is uh, and this might be more of a cultural background type thing is um, one cannot have purpose without taking on responsibility uh, um, they're, very, they're highly linked the, the, the two of them and so as, as you're searching for purpose you know uh, you're taking on these responsibilities uh, but then at some point it becomes about the responsibility and not the purpose. And I think that that is kind of something where I've experienced at times this disconnect. Um, and uh, it, I think it would be very interesting to, to explore what was it in the lab when, when you were finding your purpose, uh, that you were just having these responsibilities and you're deviating from your purpose, your goals, and things that, that, you, thought were, uh, that you felt were going to uh, uh, result in a fulfillment in, in your life.
0: Yeah, I, that's such a deep question. I love it. This is such a Jose Otero question. <laughs> I would expect nothing less, by the way. But what I wanted, where I would, where I, how I received it is I mean, I love that concept of purpose and responsibility. It's responsibility to who? And it Mm -hmm. went from shifting from responsibility to my mentors and societal's expectations and the med school's expectations and my MD-PhD's expectations, my husband's expectations, to responsibility to my happiness and to myself first above Mm -hmm. everyone else. Mm -hmm. And when I put myself first, it helped me make decisions. It didn't mean the decisions weren't sometimes painful and hard because they really were. But it meant that I was going to be responsible to me first. Mm-hmm. I see.
1: I, I think that's a very, very important uh, point. One can't—the uh, the ultimate responsibility. Uh, the second part of that teaching I was—I uh, was always emphasizes. Uh, one has to be responsible to themselves before they can be responsible to others. And I think that that sometimes we lose track of that. You know, um, as as we as we look at what's going on in training, uh, I one of the big frustrations uh, that I see people experiencing are there's this this curriculum or program or some type of thing that that exists that I think every single person honestly, will if you have an honest conversation, will say that much of it is unnecessary, yet we do it for certain types of regulatory reasons and so forth. And I, I think that Confusing that burden with a burden of a career, right, I think that that could be two different issues. So let's say if we have a situation where there's a, um, a, a, a how does one determine, like, what, what, how can one begin to frame a, a, um, a workflow for themselves to identify, am I frustrated with what the career is doing or with the process of obtaining the certification that I'm needed to do? I think that that's a a pretty common thing that I've seen. Have you had any thoughts on that?
0: Do you have an example that I could So
1: Sure, absolutely. So uh, an example would be, um, so when I was a resident, I I needed to do certain rotations. Uh, Even though I went to a very prestigious program, half of my residency were in hospitals that were like a VA or a public county hospital. I learned nothing. I literally was just a scribe. I was just a body, didn't learn a thing. But I knew that I needed to be there to count towards my residency training. I couldn't just like opt out. And I had to come to, one has to come to the to the determination. Am I upset about the career path? Or am I upset about this storm? And so the coming, i found many times, is this a question of I'm weathering a storm or is there a bigger issue here? I think that those are kind of uh, things that I've seen many times. That's so
0: interesting. Yes, I relate to this. So I'm thinking HIPAA compliance <laughs> training, <laughs> <laughs> IRB stuff, Yes, like yes. that part of stuff. So this is interesting. Okay, I will want to say that a couple, of, there's so many layers to this. Is it the career or is it the process? It could also be both that we want to make room mm-hmm. for that. Sure. And something that I, that was really one of the first fundamental shifts for me in coaching is I had this idea that everything was supposed to be, I mean, it sounds very illogical, but I think most people will agree. The idea we should all, we should always be shooting for happiness and happy days. And so whenever mm-hmm. I wasn't happy, it was very distressing that I did something wrong. I'm in the wrong job. My boss doesn't care mm-hmm. for me. This is all terrible, is where I would go for that versus in coaching, the idea is is life is 50-50. So half of life is going to be easy and fun and half of life is going to be a struggle. And so for your example, there is this concept like this might be the plane out of life, the residency being 50-50. It's very prestigious. It opens up all jobs in the world. Everyone wants you at their institution. It opens up so many doors. Amazing. But not every moment will be amazing. And there will be about half of those moments where you're like, "Why am I even here? What yes. purpose does this serve?" And our job there for ourselves is to realize we are in the we are in the full expression of the human experience, which is not always going to be positive. It doesn't have to be a problem. And here's where it can be really helpful, especially if you have students listening. Were trainees listening? Is what I would, where I would coach on is then why are you doing it? If you don't like this rotation, why are you doing it? So go ahead and answer that for the listeners. You're doing it because.
1: Are, are you asking me? Like, mm-hmm. uh, what, the v- why? The VA rotation? Doing... Yeah. So, I mean, in those cases, I was doing it because I had to do it in order to get certified and finish my residency. Uh, there was really no other reason for me. Yeah.
0: And if, let's say you decided, just this is just a hypothetical, but I think it will help because I think there's, what I'm tapping into is I think a lot of people in medicine are suffering because we have these thoughts, I have to, I need to, I'm forced, yeah. I don't have any choice. Yeah. But let's just say you woke up one day and you said, I am not going back to the VA ever. I will never go. I don't <laughs> like it. Then what would have happened?
1: What would have happened in that case is I would have probably been kicked out of the residency program because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I would have just like not been... Uh, accepted.
0: Right, right. And then after you were kicked out, what would have happened?
1: Well, I've been unemployed and I just scramble for a living. Right. <laughs>
0: and so we actually, this is, so when we can see, we actually, no one's forcing us, no one's forcing us to do the HIPAA compliance. We don't like doing it and we do it mm-hmm. because we want to stay in this residency program because we know what will be on the other side of this. And so, in fact, we start tapping into and exercising this muscle. I don't like this, and and I get it, and I'm not wrong for it. And there's this larger win I'm pulling for. This Mm -hmm. thing is one unpleasant step in terms of a larger thing I want to get done. Mm -hmm. I am actually choosing it. And now we get to think, okay, if I'm choosing it, there's this larger thing. How do I make this a little bit easier on myself? Mm -hmm. And part of making it easier is allowing yourself to hate it or whatever, mm-hmm. frustrated yeah. by annoyed, it, as long as you are, and not make mm-hmm. yourself wrong there.
1: Yeah, I think It's the difference very,
0: between I yeah. have to and I'm choosing this.
1: Yeah. I think that that's, that's a very, it's just going through that exercise really made me think and kind of play out the options and, and so forth, kind of going back in time to where I was at. That's very interesting and very helpful advice. You know, similar to that concept is, you know, for many of us who, are in healthcare or biomedical science or or train in both, a constant mantra that you're talking, that you hear from your uh, superiors, your advisors, your program directors, is this notion of pipeline, which I've communicated to you before that I I really dislike because the the analogy, of course, is that there's a pipe that is going somewhere and uh, that inevitably pipes leak but you want to prevent the leakage, and the only optimal outcome is to get for the for the water to get to where the pipe is ending. And although I can understand it coming from government, if there's a government plan saying, "Oh well, we anticipate we need so many pediatricians or so many geriatricians by 2040, and we have to generate that as a, as a society," I can not understand it in this context. But when uh, I, I found this to be actually a lot of pressure in the way it's communicated uh, in, um, uh, uh, to students, uh, to trainees, because it really does make you feel uh, like things are, um, are, are th- that there's like this undesirable outcome. Uh, we're, phrases I've heard before is like, the path of the physician scientist is littered with people who don't make it. Like that, that's been, that was recently told to me by a colleague about three months ago. And so the question comes in, like, well, don't make it. What do you mean by don't make it? I found that statements like that are actually quite harmful for trainees. Uh, And so when I want to get your perspectives on that and also your your, how you would suggest dealing with these types of thoughts.
0: Yeah. What did you come up with? What is your when your colleague said don't make it? What is he he or she referring to? Thing?
1: I imagine that they are referring to a person in an academic organization funded by a competitive federal grant, be it DOD or NIH. That, that's mm-hmm. what I imagine they're talking about.
0: Yeah. And what do you suppose happens to those people?
1: Well, um, most of them probably end up either changing careers or changing directions or focusing on yeah. on a, uh, a livelihood that doesn't include that type of work.
0: Yeah. So it's this all about perspective, right? So someone who has maybe an academic position with NIH funding, their view of making it is looking like them, which is an academic position with NIH funding. Mm-hmm. But those people who don't, you know, in quotes, make it, they don't fall off the edge of the planet. They go on and create something for themselves and they may in fact, if you depending on how you're looking at it, be making it in the way that's uniquely positive and beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's goal, I mean, I would, it's, there's a bent probably for your listeners, but not everyone's goal is to be in academia earning grants. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a million ways to be successful. And what if there was just space for everyone? It does. I want to also like this other piece of coaching is this idea that there might be some place you might make some career choice where no one has anything negative to say. That would be amazing. And I don't think that's on planet Earth. (laughs) It would be so good if everyone's like she made the right choice. She's obviously doing the right thing. And also that's just never going to happen. And so then we just get to come back to, okay, knowing that no matter what we do will not be enough for everyone. What is it that we want to do? For some mm-hmm. people, it's an academics and others, it's not.
1: Yeah. And and so I, I think what would be, uh, you know, interesting is to get your thoughts on how does one identify the type when when an advice, uh, you know, when because when as, as a trainee, you're looking at people, you have a lot of respect for them. You're looking up to uh, some of these mentors. And in some cases, it's easy to identify when the mentor's advice is, uh, let's say, incongruent with your values or whatnot. But other times it's challenging. And, and, I, and, um, and I, I, I think some tools uh, would be very useful uh, to identify, oh, this, this is coming from a biased person or a biased perspective, uh, and I shouldn't let this be uh, something that affects my identity.
0: Mm, oh, my gosh, so good. Yes. I mean, if I could go back in time and tell my younger self... This is, this is a big question is that is and I think medicine academics really, it assumes your value equals your grant funding, your values equals your papers and cell science in nature. Yeah. Your value is like, how big is your office? It's all of these things that really essentially have nothing to do with your value. But as long as we are trapped into that, or we're thinking our value is based on these things, it has us chasing other people's approval all of our lives. hmm and so I think it's good, I think, I think for your scientist audience to just remember, we want to be investigating everything, even our mentor's advice. Mm-hmm. And I'll say so many people who I coach, they come up, well, my boss told me this, so this is obviously true, Christina. I was like, wait, 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 wait. We actually <laughs> get a chance to investigate those thoughts. Yeah. And they might be true for the mentor, but doesn't necessarily mean they're true for us. So how the analogy I use for trainees is imagine you're at a dinner and someone's walking around with a platter of thoughts and opinions. You don't have to take them all just because you're meant with who's holding them.
1: Mm-hmm. You do
0: really get to choose which thoughts I'm integrating, which thoughts I'm accepting, and which thoughts I'm just leaving on the the platter. You can do it in a respectful way. You don't even have to tell someone you disagree if you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. But you do get to choose what you want to believe.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And it will start with something that I teach, I think is really just a fundamental tool that might help your people is that our value is 100% the day we were born. It's just 100%. It doesn't increase when we get funding and it doesn't decrease if we lose funding. It's always 100%. And as, when you truly know that, it starts liberating you from the decisions you're making. It starts separating you from the decisions you're making. And the, what I usually hear at this point, so your listeners might be thinking this, but if I delink my value from what I'm doing, maybe I won't do anything ever again. And hmm. here's the truth. Science shows, there's publications on there. When we delink our value, we create even more than we thought was possible. We create so much more. When we tend to think we are our only a good doctor for do X, Y, and Z, we usually wind up giving. We'll still create because we're brilliant people. We have an enormous capacity, but it's really a fraction of what we're capable of as long as our values attached to it. Mm-hmm. So how, your question is, how do you know if this is a, a thought to believe or not and when it's coming from someone you respect? How, what I would use is how does it feel? So if mm-hmm. you put that thought on and you feel a deep sense of shame and judgment, I would say, I don't care who says it. This is not a thought to practice. We just get to pick what we believe. Yeah. Also align it with what are the results you're trying to create? Is this thought getting you closer or further from the person you're trying to become? So your feelings and the results.
1: Mm, I see. I mean, I I remember feeling multiple times uh, when I was being told something, uh, usually a form of I felt like I was being manipulated. I wouldn't say shame ever came up, but I, I I could see like okay, this person wants me to stay in the lab for another year, okay, or this person <laughs> wants me to do this for another yeah. year, or or commit to uh, to 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 work at a part, in a particular rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the the types of feelings you're talking about feelings, the type of feelings I I would usually come up was feelings of manipulation or having like almost kind of like i was being sold a car actually um you know and so uh, that was one of the things that i experienced uh you know in that um
0: well yeah so, so paying attention to that would be like i'm feeling manipulated here so there's at least a danger warning sign here i want to investigate these thoughts yeah and also like where the coaching piece on that would be like what if you could never be manipulated they're going to say and do things. So, for example, in this situation, a PI wants you to stay longer is kind of the thought. You could look at it as, of course they want me to stay forever. I'm really good at this. They get to pay a lower salary because I'm not faculty yet or whatever. Of course they want me here mm-hmm. and I can't be manipulated. I still get to make my choice.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that, that's that's very important advice. I think the, the fear that many people have especially when they're in a competitive residency program or whatnot, is uh, the fear of replacement, right? Uh, so I certainly felt when I was uh, doing, uh, after residency, I did a short postdoctoral fellow fellowship. I certainly felt that I was easily replaced, right? Um, and I don't know how much that was really imposter syndrome and insecurity versus the fact that I was in a position that, um, many people were applying to. I actually kind of knew that the advisor would, would say almost every day, oh, I got a, another, you know, just in passing, another application for a postdoc or something like that. And so there So there might be real issues of job security versus imposter syndrome. How can we tease this out a bit more and to, to, to make yeah, a better these decision? Are, these
0: are such common thoughts in medicine for sure that we could just be replaced. So how does that impact than your decision making when you're yeah, thinking that
1: exactly. Uh, so, in, in, it would impact me in the sense in the sense that I would tolerate, I would have to tolerate certain things, uh, and um, you know, move forward with kind of be more compliant with what the, what uh, in this case the advisor would be asking me.
0: Yeah, and so we want to look at that. Like, even if it feels, if it we our brain kind of believes that it's true, if we look at what it creates for ourselves tolerance Mm. of being mistreated or going against our values or stepping back from our goals. Mm -hmm. That's a thought we're going to want to question. And so Mm -hmm. where medicine does tell us we're all replaceable and we see examples of it. Someone faculty leaves the next day, someone else is in there. So we see examples of that. We also want to remember, I mean, there is also truth and we're not replaceable like finding Mm -hmm. truth in that and coaching would be okay. They can put another body here, but it will never be exactly me. Mm hmm. And if even if I'm replaced, my story doesn't end here. I continue to make choices. I continue to operate in the world. I find a different place, maybe even a better place.
1: Yeah, I think that, that, that I think that's a, that would be a very much more healthier way of handling it. than The way I did when I was a postdoc, <laughs> which was to just work harder uh, and and um, try to make a production productivity case um, as opposed to a. I think what you're getting at is a a value a creativeness space that you bring that no one else can replace. Uh, for me, I was I, I ended up defaulting to a more primitive uh, uh, solution which was like, well, I'll make sure that I do more Western blots and cell culture than everybody else or something like that, which really creeped and affected my personal life a lot. Um, so your technique would have been definitely much better.
0: I want to just make an insert because I think most people in medicine think the answer to everything is work harder. And I don't want anyone to walk away from this podcast thinking, oh, I have this. This is a more primitive thought. This is not as, Mm. as elevated. Because if we were to investigate it and we went back in time about why you decided to do a Western blot, what you knew at the time, that made a lot of sense. And so the more we can just drop into understanding, okay, I was doing what I thought was the best. We can just kind of understand ourselves from that place. It gives us more freedom to make other choices in the future.
1: That's a, that's a very nice thought. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I wanted to transition a little bit to uh, a surprising topic that I, as I was um, uh, preparing for this uh, podcast, you know, I was, you know, looking at, at, the literature on mentoring kind of uh, doing some research and i started searching up joy uh, in joy in life joy in work and i was really struck by how common um mentoring is talked about in careers joy is not uh and when you start looking it up you end up actually broaching into a lot of religious spiritual kind of uh thought uh, thought uh and and so forth and if i may i wanted to kind of um, read some of these interesting quotes that I, that I, that I found. Um, uh, it, and so one of them, now this is coming from someone who's not, I have no uh, ex- expertise in Hinduism. I got this off of some a website called the Chaplaincy Institute, but it really struck me. And it says, O oh Lord, may we attain the everlasting consciousness of supreme light and joy. May we resolve to dedicate our life to the service of humankind and uplift them to divinity, and what really struck me is that the sage who wrote this uh, really is is connecting the concept of joy with um, with service to others. I thought that was very interesting uh, because it, that 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 connection resonates with me. I do feel feel that and you know i wanted to get your thoughts on that connection uh and um you know if you see that in your in your practice as coach uh and uh that maybe we need more of that
0: yes exactly so Here's the thing. And I'm going to rely on studies in clinical psychology is that mm-hmm. when we're me and, and coaching looks at this as well. When we're me focused, I am suffering, I am in pain, like that's where the pain can get very, very intense. Mm. And So a common coaching technique, a common technique in clinical psychology is to do distancing, which has become other focused. Mm-hmm. which is to be in service of others. Like there's really nothing that will help you feel better faster than when you are in service of others. It's just this natural human instinct. There's mm-hmm. lots of ways to get distance. I think um, in service of others is a really important one, especially for anyone in the biomedical sciences or medicine. It's just something that taps into our inherent skills. But there's also, I'd like to just eat, mentally go to this place that it might even take a le- lot because if someone's in extreme burnout, volunteerism mm-hmm. is not on their list of things to do. Of course, yeah. But we can get distancing in our mind. We can try time travel in our mind. So something, a very helpful tool that people often resonate with pretty quickly is, all right, I'm in distress over this Western blot. I feel like my career is over. And let me just time travel to the version of me who's 70, who's looking back at her whole career. And what wisdom does my 70-year-old self have Mm -hmm. in drawing wisdom from her or going back to our seven-year-old self who doesn't even know what a Western blot is, who sees, like, that's kind of cool. You know how to do a Western blot. And just kind of getting that mental distance from our younger self or our older self can start creating some space for us to put things in perspective. Or another technique they call this the Batman uh, effect in clinical psychology is where you go into the identity of somebody else, maybe a superhero. For me it's Oprah. I'm always like, What would Oprah do right now? <laughs> <laughs> Which always works for me. It gives a little chuckle yes. and it kinda of like Oprah would not be stressed about this. Yeah. But it the where it's pointing to is in the present moment when we're self-focused which is where our brain will always be we will create it will make distress so much more painful so we want to employ coaching or clinical psychology or these other adaptive tools to start getting distance and perspective so that we can make choices in service of ourselves
1: hmm, i see that's that's very very interesting you know i certainly found this to be a very big problem in my own career as I've as I've gone through uh, different phases, I've always felt that I've I've lost autonomy in a lot of things that I do, and I find that part of it I think is just because of that's the way medicine is. We need we we need to rely on other colleagues, other you know the, the patient experience is multimodal and so forth. Uh, and I, I discovered that I can tolerate a loss of my autonomy. If I'm buying into a common mission, like I can kind of like I found this to be a little bit more like kind of if I lose this. Well, maybe if I'm if I'm feeling integrated into the in, in, into the into the patient service or the mission, mission, the mission of the organization, I feel that that's OK. You know, I think I can counter counterbalance that from my own perspective. Um, so another quote that I thought was that really resonated with me. Could I insert so
0: like, one thing into that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So here's what, and how it will present for most people in coaching is they'll say, I'm jealous of, and not like what you uh, I'm going to draw on what you said, but also sure. it yeah. sometimes presents as people saying, I'm behind where I should be. I should be further ahead. This person has it easier. I feel jealous of this coworker. And mm-hmm. what we're noticing here is that tension is coming be. And most people will shut it down or feel terrible or feel like they're in the wrong job versus in coaching where I like to say is like, this is a mirror of what you want. What you want is autonomy. Now you're telling yourself you'll, you'll be okay giving it up if you have this other thing, but what if what we can work on is how can we create autonomy where you are? Or if someone's jealous of a coworker, her science is getting more recognition. Okay, what's Mm -hmm. happening is you're not really jealous of her, you're wanting more academic success. And Mm -hmm. we could look at her as an example of what's possible. And then instead of diverting our energy into I'm jealous of her and I'm bad and I shouldn't feel this way and she should not have as she has more support than me. What if we direct all that time and energy back to ourselves and creating these goals that we want? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a very productive way of, of, of looking at it. I I remember reading a, a, a book about a physicist who later on left physics to become a quantitative finance person on Wall Street. And he'd made a comment that was very funny. about He's mentioned that when he was 17, his ambition was to be Einstein. And then when by the time he was 20, his ambition was some other less prominent physicist. And then by the time he was a postdoc, he merely envied the postdoc on the next cubicle that just got a, a a seminar in France or something like that, uh, you know, and it um, yeah. yeah. So comparing each, with each other, I think it's a big problem. Um, so this next quote that I found is interesting. It was an interview by Joseph Ratzinger, who later becomes Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and the context of what he's saying is um, he's being the, the the question that was posed to him is. You know, when there's so much suffering around, uh, is it okay to feel joy uh, when there's so much suffering? Uh, and, and so his response I thought was just really interesting. He, he mentions, quote, something I constantly notice is that unembarrassed joy has become rarer. Joy today is increasingly saddled with moral and ideological burdens. The loss of joy does not make the world better. And conversely, refusing joy for the sake of suffering does not help those who suffer. The contrary is true. The world needs people who discover the good, who rejoice in it, and thereby derive the impetus and courage to do good. Joy then does not break with solidarity. When it is a kind when there's the right kind of joy, when it is not egotistic, when it comes from the perception of the good, then it wants to communicate itself and it gets passed on. I thought that the, the notion what really resonated with me is the notion of embracing feeling okay that you can experience this and that that can actually move, spread somehow. I thought that was very interesting and I've experienced that in my personal life and I wanted to get your perspective on that uh, uh, for people bringing that into their, their careers.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting quote. So I, I, th- I relate to this too, where there are people are feeling guilty that they're h- having a good uh a celebration when someone else is not and struggling mm-hmm. and where that gets to, I think in medicine is a very common for this zero sum game, this idea there's only so much joy. So mm-hmm. if she gets some, I get less. If I get more, mm-hmm. they get less when really what's happening is there's not as uh, there's not a limit on joy and there's not a limit on suffering either. <laughs> <laughs> that We, that there, we could all have some and I, I rather have like this, concept of a rising tide lifts all boats Mm -hmm. once it becomes possible and like the i think there was a four minute before someone ran the four minute mile no one thought it was possible and then someone Mm -hmm. did and then someone else did and then someone else did right so it's the idea of just like looking at this possibility of when i when if you're suffering my suffering won't help you. My suffering doesn't make doesn't take your suffering away. It just adds twice as much suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. So I have the option of also saying, perhaps joy, if it's available to me, is the choice for me. I'm not always going to be in joy, just like you're not always going to suffer. But there's a space for all of it. And it kind of comes back to this concept we talked at the beginning about life being 50-50. We're mm-hmm. always going to be in one, we're always going to be moving this is just a trans this is a kind of like a wave throughout a cycle we won't always be suffering but we won't always be in joy either and Mm -hmm. so really just coming back to ourselves where are we right now and what if that's enough and us being ourselves and creating that relief and ease and sometimes joy yeah that can be contagious too that can help with other people
1: yeah it it, what you're saying is very similar to my last quote that i found uh uh, from a jewish writer eli landes uh which I thought was so very uplifting and very similar to what you said, which is that joy isn't just something to embrace even in difficult times, but something that actually has the power to change our situation. Uh, I thought that was very beautiful and um, very hopeful. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. as if, if, you're, if you're if you were if you had a chance, uh, Christina, to be in front of an audience of burnt out physicians who needed more joy in their personal and professional lives how, how would you try to convince them that they've that they've got to embrace joy and that that could actually change their situation
0: yeah i would start by not telling them they have to embrace joy <laughs> <laughs> as good as it sounds imagine you yeah. are a burnt out physician and here's the facts of physicians have clinical depression. Up to 75, 50 to 75% have colloquial depression. 1 in 10 are are thought about committing suicide. These are the facts. And if you Mm -hmm. add on to that, and you need to embrace joy too, (laughs) which is by the way what they're saying to themselves, it just creates so much more pressure.
1: Sure. So instead I would
0: say, embrace what you're feeling right now. You are not wrong either way. And in any moment you can change everything because your brain is that powerful.
1: Well, very wise words. And I think uh, with that, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll close up our session here, but this was just so inspirational. And um, you know, I, I've learned a lot with the advice that you've given and especially that last statement. So uh, any, any last piece of advice for uh, the trainees in the audience?
0: The last piece of advice is what I was thinking is what would I tell myself way back when, when I was an MD PhD and I was really struggling and I would, I, and I I only learned recently and it really changed everything for me is I learned that I don't have to believe everything my brain offers me. I used to think whatever my brain offers is for sure the truth because it's my brain. Hello. And then I learned, actually, I get to choose on purpose what I believe. I get to manage my brain. I get to direct my brain to where I want to go versus letting my brain direct me.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Very wise words. And um, again, thank you so much for coming and joining and, and, and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us.
0: Thank you, Jose. I really appreciate being here. It's an honor. If you loved this podcast, there is so much more available inside my coaching program. You can enroll right now by going to your path And to never miss a podcast, an interview, a special, a webinar, an offer, a training, make sure you've entered your email at yourpathandfocus.com slash email. That's yourpathandfocus.com slash email. Have a beautiful week, everyone. See you next time. I also wanted to thank those of you who listened all the way to the end. Thank you so much. And may I ask you for a little favor? Since you listened all the way to the end, do you mind subscribing and leaving a five-star review with a comment on iTunes? The comment can be super brief. It can just be, I love this episode, or I can't wait for more, or whatever's on your mind. Why that's so meaningful is it helps the algorithm send this podcast to more people like you. We can help more people feel better right now. And this is how we can partner together to make the world a better, safer place for everyone. I'd appreciate that so much. See you next time. Bye.